Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his sparkling and politically urgent new book, Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Teaches Us About America, Caleb Elfenbein shows with precision and panache the discursive institutional and political conditions and processes that have normalized anti-Muslim hate in the United States, especially over the last two decades. How does fear for a caricatured and dehumanized religious minority become an entrenched part of public discourse? Elfenbein engages and answers this question through a painstaking analysis of a range of actors and discourses across the political spectrum that have contributed to establishing Islamophobia as a formidably pernicious form of violence. In our conversation, we discuss the key themes and arguments of this book that is ideally suited to be taught in various undergraduate courses, especially the Introductory Islam course and Islam in America. Here now is my conversation with Professor Caleb Elfenbein. Uh, hello, Caleb. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for your time in coming to our podcast show uh, to talk about your uh, uh, really incredible and politically urgent and lyrically written uh, new book, Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Teaches Us About America. Um, I thought to begin, um, uh, for our listeners, it might be uh, helpful uh, if, as a way to ask you, how did you come to write this book, I could perhaps add uh, another question, uh, which is that, you know, this book emerges in some ways, since we have talked about this before, you were kind enough to, you know, give a talk at my institution. And I've also taught this book to great success. I should uh, tell listeners from the get go, it's a very, very uh, excellent book to be taught in undergraduate classrooms. But you had mentioned that this project emerged in, in many ways from this larger uh, or this other digital project that you've been involved in of mapping Islamophobia. So I was wondering if you could also speak about that project, what it is about, and uh, and how that connects to you writing this particular book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you so much for the invitation. Very appreciative. Um, it's wonderful to be here with you today. Um, the, the book uh, really did emerge uh, rather organically, as you said, from uh, a, a project, a digital humanities project, mapping Islamophobia, and that really um, it, it came at a certain point in my career um, when uh, I was I was thinking much more about um, about public work, uh, about producing scholarship um, that um, that would be meaningful to a variety of audiences um, within and, and beyond the the academy. And uh, that moment in my career uh, as, a, as an educator coincided with uh, a really a very powerful introduction to um, digital humanities by a scholar named Rupika Rasam. And, uh, and, and that further coincided with 
um, with a, a moment in 2015 when I, I really just felt like I was seeing uh, more media reports about anti-Muslim sentiment and activity in the United States. And, uh, and, and I started digging around to see if, in fact, I was uh, noticing something um, new, new trends, or if I was just noticing uh, more acutely um, for some reason uh, reports that had always been there. Um, and trends um, that were longer standing than, uh, than they appeared to me, at least at first glance. And this led to mapping Islamophobia as, as a project and trying to, to really illustrate uh, in, in visual form um, trends in anti-Muslim uh, sentiment and activity in the United States, trying to dig a little bit deeper than, uh, than say, um, statistics about hate crimes, which capture certain forms of activity, um, but fall well short uh, in really demonstrating the, the everyday nature of, uh, of bias in, in public life. And uh, so Mapping Islamophobia began as an effort to do that, to share data in really accessible ways that, um, that nonetheless uh, humanize uh, the people who are affected by anti-Muslim activity in the United States. And I have to credit uh, one of my early student collaborators, uh, a, a student named Chloe Briney at Grinnell, who um, w- once once we started monitoring media reports, um, came to me one day and said, um, you know, I- I'm also finding these really beautiful stories about um, outreach efforts um, that uh, Muslims across the United States are engaging in. Um, what do we do with these really beautiful reports? And so the project expanded from there uh, to include uh, data about um, the the incredible work of, of Muslim communities across the United States um, to reach out to non-Muslim communities uh, to counter um, uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. So the the book really came from um, from. These different uh, these different elements of, of where I happen to be professionally and um, really trying to imagine um, what kind of work as an educator I could be doing to um, to kind of a, a address anti-Muslim sentiment and activity in the United States. I want to uh, begin. Uh, thanks so much, Caleb. I want to begin by talking about what, uh, to me, is one of the major themes of this book, which was especially striking to me when I reread it in preparation for our conversation today, which is this whole idea of how hate is rehabilitated. And, uh, and there was a nice irony that you also discussed that when we use the word rehabilitation, oftentimes that has a positive connotation. But here, you clearly are interested in showing how a certain kind of discourse that had been lingering and was around, but was very carefully rehabilitated into an institutionally powerful uh, discursive formation, you know. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this this, this theme of how something changed uh, in your narrative, in according to your narrative, from say 2010 onwards, in terms of really giving Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hate uh, a certain institutional and everyday foothold. So I was wondering if you could speak about that broad theme, that the rehabilitation of hate that you're trying to chart uh, in this book. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. I was... I was trying to figure out a way to talk about the fact that um, 
that though there was a, a tremendous spike in anti-Muslim activity and um, and that, of course, uh, affected um, not just Muslims, but people uh, who uh, some Americans presume to be Muslim, this tremendous spike of anti-Muslim activity after September 11th um, really decreased quite quickly, not quite to pre-September 11th levels, but um, but decreased significantly um, within a few months. And I was trying to figure out, okay, so what what made it possible between that moment when it, it really was very clear based on based on how political leaders were talking about um, the the problem of anti-Muslim activity in the United States, um, it was very clearly not publicly acceptable uh, to to say terrible things about Muslims in public, even just after September 11th. I was trying to figure out what made it possible by 2015 for it to be quite acceptable in a lot of circles to say terrible things, to imply terrible things about Muslims in the United States. I was trying to figure out what happened, what made that possible. And what I discovered is that it really was a very concerted effort uh, that began not long after September 11th by uh, what what started as a small circle of activists and expanded into uh, what in the book I describe as a social movement um, that that really culminated in in this period 2015 to 2018 and 19 uh, in really unprecedented public expression of anti-Muslim sentiment and accompanying that um, un unprecedented in its duration uh, and scale of anti-Muslim activity in the United States. And um, you noted that often when we think about something being rehabilitated, this comes with a positive connotation. Often when we think about social movements, um, that comes with a positive connotation as well. But what I was trying to really capture in using those terms in somewhat different ways than people might normally encounter them was to was to demonstrate that this was a purposeful development, that this was something that people set out to do and that achieved quite successfully, uh, disturbingly so. And so that's why I was I was trying to play around with that language to really capture this idea that um, that what we were seeing in 2015 was the culmination of um, an effort uh, that, that lasted over a decade uh, to, to build um, what I could only call an anti-Muslim social movement. Now, there are certain key moments that you highlight throughout the book as being particularly um, important um, in terms of this process of rehabilitation. And I was wondering, you know, if we could speak a bit about uh, those moments. And, you know, especially you talk a lot about the importance of the Park 51 uh, episode or controversy. And, of course, the whole, uh, quote-unquote, anti-Sharia uh, activities um, in uh, Tennessee. Uh, could you talk about those moments around, you, you show in the book that around 2010, uh, in that kind of vicinity, some very... Um, 
consequential developments took place or these episodes took place that had massive ramifications for the rest of the decade. Could you speak a bit about those key moments uh, in, 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 in the narrative that you tell about this process of rehabilitation of hate? Yeah, absolutely. There, I, there these two key moments in 2010, and I'm really glad that you're pulling out that year um, because I, I point to 2010 as a, a very important year in this story, even if um, it, it was still a few years out um, before we, we saw the, the full consequence of, um, of the anti uh, Muslim social movement in the United States. And I talk about 2010 as a, a year in which the social movement was beginning to pry open uh, the, the, the doors of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment in, in public life, right? To, to pry open that door um, that, that really opened uh, most fully uh, starting in 2015. But there were uh, two, two moments in 2010 that I think are, are especially notable. And uh, you mentioned um, of course, the, the Park 51 controversy, which really, um, in some ways, came to a head in, in the summer of that year. Um, this was a, a, a project in lower Manhattan. Uh, it was a proposed Muslim community center, much like a YMCA or a Jewish community center. Um, the idea was to, to create uh, a space in which all people were welcome um, to, to really think about what we hold in common. Um, this was the the mission um, of of the um, the folks who were who were developing this project in Lower Manhattan, and it had moved through um, the many levels of of planning uh, in New York City to uh, to really come close to to being a reality. And as it came closer uh, to uh, to realization. Um, a, a, an activist, an anti-Muslim activist named Pamela Geller, um, started talking about this project as uh, the Ground Zero Mosque and the Victory Mosque. And again, this is um, b- uh, blocks away from um, from the, the World Trade Center site. And what was intended as a project to bring people together um, became a cause for. Um, for anti-Muslim activism, and um, by the by the summer of 2010, um, nearly 70 percent of Americans opposed this project, and uh, really tragically so. And the project did uh, fall apart. But but what what this particular uh, incident made possible um, was really um, quite public. Um, statements of anti-Muslim sentiment and uh, fear-mongering of Muslims in the United States. And um, what's what's really important here is that it wasn't just people who were explicitly anti-Muslim who were opposing this project. And this is one theme in the book where I talk about the effects of public hate. Um, Mm -hmm. Public hate can make people ambivalent, can make people not sure about you know what what they think about particular groups of people in this case uh, Muslims in the United States and and given that um, still approximately half of Americans say that they have never met someone who's Muslim don't know anyone who's Muslim um, public hate right, can create this ambivalence that leads people to say yeah maybe we're better off without this project in lower Manhattan 
whose intent right was to to connect people and to um, to unify people so this was a, a a really important moment in that it created space, an open space for anti-Muslim activists like Pamela Geller and uh, like Robert Spencer uh, to, uh, to, to gain something of a foothold in public life in the United States um, in, in their anti-Muslim activism. Just a, a few months later, in, uh, in October of that year, uh, voters in Oklahoma um, approved an amendment to the state constitution that banned the consideration of Sharia, uh, or sometimes often called Islamic law, in state courts. And um, although the amendment was eventually blocked in court, um, this was the first in what became a nationwide legislative effort uh, under the banner of American laws for American courts. And um, this this effort it's really important to note that everyone who brought similar kinds of legislation um, for consideration in state legislatures across the country, every person acknowledged that Sharia in state courts was not a problem. Right? This was not something that was um, that was a pressing issue in the United States everyone involved would say we are trying to get out in front of a problem of muslims bringing un-american laws to the united states and undermining our democracy in fact right the role of sharia in people's lives has a lot to do with um, matters of inheritance um, marriage right things of everyday life uh, and helping people think about the values that they bring into these very everyday activities. So the idea that people would be drawing on Islamic law to undermine American democracy, to undermine American values is cynical at best. And uh, it's, it's very important to note that, um, that the, the figure who is, I think, most singularly responsible for um, American laws for American courts um, an attorney from uh, New York City named uh, David Ural Shami, uh, he acknowledged that the point to this initiative was to uh, raise doubts about Muslims in the United States. He actually is on record saying, it doesn't really matter whether these bills become law. What matters is that we can talk about the threat that Muslims pose to the United States. We can so doubt about whether Muslims really want to be part of the United States. And that to me really points to the incredibly cynical nature of these efforts. So although courts ruled um, the Oklahoma uh, constitutional amendment um, unconstitutional, uh, these efforts um, continued uh, in, in the uh, following years across the country. And so I really do understand this year in 2010 uh, to mark a turning point in the you know, public acceptability of anti-Muslim sentiment. One of the things that I really like about this book is that it is actually a deeply theoretical uh, book, which is making 
you know, which is launching this theoretical inquiry into the question of how a particular discourse becomes normalized, or in this case, how does this uh, uh, sort of implicitly or explicitly hateful or um, the othering, the the othering of uh, Islam and Muslims in the U.S. How did it become normalized? But it's doing that theoretical work in a kind of language which would be highly accessible uh, to a range of audiences. So I just want to applaud you for that, for that, uh, and ask you about that question as well. This this key theme of the book about how a particular kind of discourse becomes normalized. And what I liked about that was you showed that it happens across the political spectrum. Of course, you know, the particularly pernicious actors that 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 you engage do come from a certain kind of, you know, far-right uh, political and, and sort of activist uh, actors. But there was a very poignant moment in, uh, I believe it was chapter three, uh, where you also talk about Bill Clinton and his speech at the 2016 Democratic Convention, where he mentions, you know, this kind of a political slogan that if you believe in freedom and are against terrorists, etc., for Muslims, then you can stay here. And you do a very interesting analysis of this this statement of you can stay here. Uh, who was he referring to? Was it green card holders or Muslim refugees or those on work visas? Uh, citizens, of course, can stay here no matter what. So anyways, I wanted to ask you about this 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 theme of how a discourse becomes normalized and perhaps do that through another key moment that happens not in the U.S. but outside the U.S., the Charlie Hebdo episode and how that, that leads to this whole discourse of the no-go zones. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that concept and connect it to this larger key theme of your book about how a discourse over time uh, becomes sedimented and normalized. Yeah. yeah. I, thank you very much for, for those uh, kind comments about about the theorization in the book. And um, one of the things that, that I was trying to do in the book was to demonstrate that um, learning about anti-Muslim sentiment and activity in the United States helps us learn both about uh, Muslim experiences in the United States, but also some really important things about American public life more generally. And, uh, and so approaching it in somewhat theoretical terms, asking, what can we learn from this particular instance that we might be able to generalize um, beyond this particular instance? That was a really important part of the project. And it's one of the things that allowed me to connect anti-Muslim activity and sentiment to much broader histories of, um, of other forms of uh, racism uh, in the history of the United States and other forms uh, in, uh, that um, policing of public life have taken, um, a, a certain kind of um, policing of, of who and what is acceptable in public spaces um, that, um, that really unfolds from uh, the, the power of, of whiteness in the United States um, to set norms and terms of public life. So that, that theoretical element was really very important for making broader historical uh, and cultural uh, and political uh, connections in the United States. And um, so the, the, the moment that you raise um, the, the attacks on the satirical publication, French publication, Charlie Hebdo, right, those, um, those were in 2015. And if 2010 was a moment in which anti-Muslim activists uh, kind of pried open the door of public life uh, to public hate against Muslims, 2015 was really uh, a year in which 
um, events around the world, uh, in, in particular in France, made it possible uh, to, to really uh, to see leaders saying uh, and doing uh, remarkably anti-Muslim things in public. And so, of course, the, the attacks on, on uh, Charlie Hebdo offices uh, were really horrible, uh, terrible. Um, many people died, uh, including um, uh, two police officers, uh, and uh, and and these right these actions took place in the context of calls by Al Qaeda and Daesh or ISIS uh, for lone wolf attacks uh, across the country, across the the world, um, in France and, and beyond, and these attacks. Um, Opened, opened space in public life for people in France and in the United States to begin talking about this idea of no-go zones, um, wherein uh, Muslims who refuse to integrate into uh, broader society, whether in France or the United States, um, lived as if uh, they they uh, were not in uh, in either of these countries. And they had created enclaves in which uh, people um, other than uh, than Muslims uh, were unable to go, and this includes law enforcement. And um, and and this became a really common claim in Europe. And um, anti-Muslim activists and politicians in the United States really took up this idea of no-go zones in claiming that. Um, that Muslims in the United States refused to really become American, whatever that might mean. Um, and uh, that's perhaps a, a much longer and larger conversation, but very coded in, uh, in, in racist, racist terms. And again, similarly to anti-Sharia efforts in the United States, this idea of no-go zones um, People acknowledged, activists acknowledged, legislators acknowledged that these weren't really a thing. And yet, um, introducing legislation to ban no-go zones in Tennessee, for example, made it possible to say, oh, we're, we're just getting out in front of a potential problem. And what that does is it makes people who don't know otherwise, um, it makes people doubt, it makes people question. And again, it creates at the very least uh, a deep ambivalence that makes it possible for people to say and do uh, really quite terrible things um, in public when it comes to uh, Muslims in the United States. So um, this was right a moment in, in early 2015 that continued to, to, to pry, to use that metaphor again, to pry the door open to anti-Muslim sentiment in public life. And there were further activities in 2015. Um, again, uh, we see Pamela Geller um, being uh, intentionally provocative in organizing the Muhammad Art exhibit and contest in, uh, in Garland, Texas. Uh, it was really meant to be provocative. That was the point. And, um, and, and in fact, uh, it did provoke. And two 
uh, armed men did arrive and uh, shot and killed an unarmed, uh, an unarmed security guard. And the, the really tragic thing about this, um, including the loss of life, and I want to highlight that, including the loss of life, was that Geller, along with um, other organizers, uh, prepared for violence. They anticipated violence. And in the very fact of the contest in which they invited really terrible depictions of people and things that are important to Muslims around the world, um, really, I might even go so far as to say wanted there to be violence. Um, A writer in Breitbart, for example, uh, after the fact, called the event a, quote, Selma for the free speech movement. It was really disturbing. The whole point of the exhibit was to show that Muslims aren't really American, that whether they're citizens or not, um, non-Muslims need to watch Muslims. They need to surveil Muslims. And, um, and, and that idea of policing Muslims in public life I think became uh, a really dominant motif in public life um, from 2015 um, through the, the rest of the decade. I want to return to uh, the moment of 9-11, which um, is uh, central to chapter four in your book. And you make the argument that I would like you to perhaps uh, elaborate for our listeners a bit that you know one cannot think about these two last decades as moving in some kind of a linear fashion that 9-11 and the anti-Muslim hate it generated then leads to what happens after 2010 or 15 for that matter. But you do argue that the events after 9-11 laid the conditions or set the sort of terrain or conditions for what happened in the the consequent or the subsequent uh, rather decade. Uh, Could you explain that argument for our listeners a bit? Yeah, absolutely. And, And I do... I do have to credit um, my first editor on this project, Carrie Newman, for for helping me think about um, ways of telling the story that uh, that made it clear that where we found ourselves at the end of the second decade of the 21st century was not inevitable. And that was really very important for me uh, in this project. It would be really easy to move from 9-11 to the anti-Muslim sentiment um, of of the last years. And I wanted to be very careful um, as an historian to show that um, this was not inevitable. It was the result of deliberate efforts. It was the result of a concerted effort. And uh, and so to really think about the, the moments after September 11th, um, is really very important because on the one hand, um, we see the securitization of public life following um, September 11th in really unprecedented ways, the expansion of, um, of surveillance of Muslim and other communities. Um, we see uh, the increased militarization of police. So really a, 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 a watershed moment in, uh, in the nature of our public life and the degree to which uh, we are policed and surveilled. So it really created some, um, some significant 
elements of uh, what has been normalized as a security state uh, with tremendous repercussions for Muslim communities in the United States and I'll add um, for communities of color more generally in the United States. Um, but it's also really important to note that at the same time that the Bush administration following September 11th um, was surveilling and detaining Muslims, uh, we also had political leaders in both parties really emphasizing the fact that Muslims have been and are an essential part of the fabric of American life. And the fact that political leaders were emphasizing that point in public really does appear to have made a difference and uh, to, made it, to make it less acceptable for people to say terrible things about Muslims in public, even, again, if, uh, if the, the Bush administration was doing terrible things. Um, to Muslims in the United States, and so, and so we see, um, we see really in, in in different ways the conditions being set. Even if the outcome was not inevitable, we see the conditions being set for different possibilities. We see, on the one hand, um, a, a real idea that 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 good political leadership can um, can help public life take on. Uh, certain qualities and characteristics and, and can help uh, people um, think in more inclusive terms about, um, about the United States. But we also saw um, that, um, that fear-mongering, which was also very much uh, perhaps a, a dominant part of, uh, of cultural life um, following September 11th, um, that, that that too can set conditions. Um, for for the way that we live together, and uh, and so right, we see we see these possibilities unfold after September 11th, and we see what happens uh, as um, activists and uh, political leaders uh, emphasize one path over another, an inclusive path, an exclusive path, and uh, it, it really was it was really. Um, it was really important for me as this project unfolded to, to see in, in quite clear terms that, that political leadership, um, that uh, courage in political leadership uh, is, is really such a vital part of our public life. I want to, as a, a final question, uh, turn to a theme that you already have talked about before the whole theme of um, the um, outreach efforts or the efforts to humanize, in some ways, uh, Islam and Muslims on the part of American Muslims uh, after, you know, not only after 9-11, but in the last decade or so as well. I wanted to ask you about an interesting tension that you also wrestle with in this final chapter of the book, which is that on the one hand, how to tell these, you know, positive stories and you begin with two very interesting stories of Muslims who are engaged in this outreach work and how to how to show the kind of promise that this holds in terms of a more humane uh, public discourse but on the other hand also capture the the problematic nature of this pressure to engage a wider public which either could be ignorant or could be um, you know, biased or or the disresponsibility on the shoulders of the minority to 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 humanize itself, 
how to how to show the problematic nature of that while also celebrating the kinds of outcomes that this has achieved. Uh, how did you wrestle with that as a thinker, writer, and if you could address this this theme that comes from this chapter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank thank you for that question. So, for me, um, in writing this book, that the tension that you point to came down to um, really wanting to honor uh, the enormous efforts that uh, that Muslims across the United States have undertaken since September 11th, um, but, uh, but, but especially during the, the period um, that I cover in this book, um, to, uh, to demonstrate um, that they are part of communities across the country, right? That they are, um, they are, they are active citizens in this way. Uh, they are active contributors um, to communities small and large across the country. So I wanted to honor that. But I also wanted to point out the fact that um, that the enormous time and energy that go into these kinds of outreach efforts um, take away from all the other things that people do to live life, to be parents, to be professionals, to volunteer in ways that are meaningful for them, but in, but in which they are not obliged to participate. And it, it is this pressure that I see to humanize themselves to um, some of the language, some of the, the, the description that I use in, in the book is to minister to other people's fears. Oh, um, those people are afraid of Muslims. And so therefore we need to show that we are normal average people in order to do that, of course, Muslims across the country have overcome their own fears about welcoming people into their space, right? Their intimate spaces of mosques and homes to show that they are safe, to show that they are just average uh, Starbucks loving um, uh, Americans, right? And that term comes from a, a particular story in the book uh, in a, an open open mosque event in Florida and an imam really emphasized, you know, like we, we love Starbucks just like everyone else. Um, and so there is this tension. I wanted to honor the incredible work that people are doing in Muslim communities to counter anti-Muslim sentiment and activity, but also to point out that this is in fact a unique burden on Muslim communities. And I will say more broadly on, um, on communities of color across the country. That this kind of burden of humanization, right, is something that majority communities don't have to contend with, frankly. Um, and as someone from a majority community in the United States, I I really wanted to grapple with that myself. Uh, and so I, I want I wanted, um, in particular, uh, readers from majority communities um, to both see that it's important to appreciate and acknowledge efforts and to see um, that they might not always reflect a core American idea that our participation in public life is voluntary. We get to choose what we do in public life. Uh, I wanted to point out that, yeah, that's not really the case for a lot of people, right? If, if, people are in fact fearful in leaving the house because their experience of everyday life comes with certain indignities, harassment, sometimes violence. 
um, that that outreach work to counter to counter the the um, the public hate that makes that possible that's not always voluntary and uh, and that tension I think is really vital uh, for people to grapple with um, because it, it it does say something about the nature of our public life in which some people feel more welcome than others some people feel more able to navigate uh, whatever spaces they want when they want um, than others and and you know, I think that that gets to some pretty core American values about um, voluntary participation in public life, um, equal treatment in public life. Really gets at these these things that most Americans agree are really important in our country, and uh, to be able to point out the ways in which we don't live up to those values, uh, I, I think is is always an important step to take. So as we're coming to the end of our time, Caleb, could you uh, perhaps share with our listeners a bit what you're planning as your next project? Well, I am um, I'm taking baby steps uh, in that project, and, and um, it, it has um, my research interests um, have really picked up on elements of, of, uh, of this project, Fear in Our Hearts, um, namely... Um, questions about public life and how we approach public life, uh, especially regarding difference. And uh, I, I'm very interested in debates right now about how uh, Americans um, contend with our collected histories. And uh, so there is an important theme in Fear in Our Hearts that is very much about tying um, Muslim experience of anti-Muslim sentiment uh, an activity to broader histories in in the U.S. and uh, so I'm I'm looking to uh, to dig in a little bit to those broader histories and to explore um, why it is that um, that many members of majority communities in the United States are really quite afraid of looking at those histories and the way that that fear manifests in debates that we're having uh, in public life around education around public space and memorialization. Uh, so really bringing, bringing these themes um, from, um, from fear in our hearts uh, to maybe a broader sweep of, uh, of history and public life in the, in the United States. Fear in our hearts, what Islamophobia teaches us about America by Professor Caleb Elfenbein. Uh, thank you so much, Caleb, for your generous uh, time and uh, for this conversation and for writing this incredibly urgent and important uh, book. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So this was my con conversation with Professor Caleb Elfenbein about his wonderful new book, Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Teaches Us About America. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of NBIS, which operates on NBN. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.